0: Welcome to Across the Pond, Marketing Transformed, a podcast that explores ways to transform your business and marketing strategy, whether you are a rising star, entrepreneur, or experienced professional. A show packed with stories to inspire success and build a growth mindset for you and your company. Featuring global brand CMOs, transformation experts, and business founders, your co-hosts, Chris Lawson in London, UK, and Samuel Monney, across the pond in philadelphia usa
1: welcome to episode 17 of across the pond marketing transformed my name's samuel Money in philadelphia in the usa and i'm joined from london by chris lawson in the uk say hi chris hey sam how are you doing doing awesome how are you no, sir? i'm good i'm good yeah it's been a Good, good week, nice and busy, but uh been looking forward to getting this podcast underway. Yeah, this week's episode is going to talk about rising above your competition and getting those competitive juices going. We're going to look at competitor activity and how to use it constructively to motivate yourself, your company, and improve your offering to your audience and your consumers and your customers. Marketing transformation is all about how, to, how do you make the significant step, not the incremental one. And a lot of time for it comes from examining the market and finding that clear space or working out how you can muscle in and create something different and differentiated mm. from the inc- incumbents and in the competition. But do you need a killer instinct to win at all, all costs? If you don't like conflict, how do you succeed? And in some markets, the competition may feel huge. Or what if the tables are turned? What if you're <laughs> a blockbuster or a Kodak, you're sitting pretty uh, and you feel that no one can touch you, but then you know what happens? And what's your role within the organization to keep that focus? In this episode, we deal with the motivations, the mindset, the processes, and the toolset to keep one step ahead. So, Chris... What's your competitive instinct like?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a that's a good one, that Sam. Um, well, it's, I think it's definitely changed over the years. To be frank, yeah, you know, my my school friends said will say and still say that I possess no competitive instinct on the sports field. But but academically, I always took pride in what mm. I was doing and and kept one eye on my classmates and and of course. I was really, really competitive with my younger, super talented sister. That was both a source of frustration and motivation to <laughs> growing up. Um, and you, you've got to think about it, who She was a new entrant into my life, hogging the limelight. And, and those, uh, those feelings run deep for a while, don't they? Oh dear. Uh, but these days, even with running, <laughs> even with sports now that I enjoy doing, such as running, I, I am competitive. I'm assessing how I'm doing against myself mainly. But ultimately, it is about enjoyment and satisfaction. But that competitive instinct is there. And certainly, when it comes to business, it isn't necessarily about success at all costs. You know, values are important to me. They don't go out of the, the window. But I do like to fight and win smart. And, and my approach will be strategic. It will be intelligent and analytical, not aggressive, not based right. on bravado but so in some ways that that hasn't changed since school and in some ways it very much has so i've learned that you've got to play to your strengths sam but but you to get all focused and if that is taking market share mm. from a competition, then it then it's take share from a competition. You have to be focused mm. on that. So, um, you know, a bit of a mixture there, Sam.
1: What about you? Yeah, I first remember being able to relate to I think that sort of competitive aspect of my personality via Daley Thompson. And he's a retired British decathlete who, start, who, when he started, as you would say in America, track and yeah, field amazing. or athletics in the UK, um, over time he became an elite competitor. Then he had a particular rival, who held the world record many times of this six foot eight German called Jürgen Hingson. And the story I loved about Daley, he would call Jürgen up on Christmas and ask if he was enjoying his meal, enjoying his family time and his presents. And Daly would gleefully declare that he'd been out training. And that's why Daly was going to be, beat him. He was going to win gold and become the champion. Now, the, the backstory to Daly Thompson, he wasn't this super aggressive athlete. He actually wasn't nationally good at any single event. And so his coach, feeling sorry for him, said, why don't you try all of them? It's, and then, that's that's what made him become the decathlete. And so his mindset drove him to try something. Because he wasn't good at anything, he became good at something and it was actually the decathlon. So listen, I'm not advocating this work all hours philosophy and I don't want this to be like a self-indulgent episode. So with our audience in mind, I'll say the competitive instinct for me has been driven by setting standards really high. So the Daily Thompson thing is about setting your standards really high, going for gold, raising the bar and appealing and trying to become world-class and put the best effort in to, to get there. And it's quite an aggressive aggressive stance and one I hold myself to and one I hold people I work with to. And it, it comes out when I've been challenged or perhaps been doubted. And when someone says, what do you, what do you know about this? Or, of doubting your application or your contribution, mm-hmm. that only gets me to prove them wrong and to push myself to learn, to study, to practice and persist. And in, in the world of work, I told a story from episode seven about starting with the how, and it was this, this time when I was leading a project for marketing capabilities. And there was a president of one of the businesses in the first course said, I'm not interested in your bureaucratic training. So there's not much more for us to talk about. And essentially the conversation was over and he had the clout to sort of block Anything I wanted to do, and I had to to really fight to succeed. And it lit the flame to ensure that I worked on the program to ensure um, to refine it and make it better. There was data to support the impact of the le- the training and the learning that I was bringing. The program was delivering a net promoter score of seventy four, which was pretty good. And there were stories of marketers applying it. But when I came to his team and his business, we actually ran a session achieved a net promoter score of 90, almost 20 points higher than the average. And I was very quick to tell him that I checked around <laughs> and, and, and tell him that score. And he said, yeah, I checked around town and you're correct. They loved it. So for me, it was a growth mindset example. So throughout the stories of I've told before, for me, competition is, is really applying the growth mindset and putting that into practice. So
0: yeah, yeah, a bit of grit there, a bit of dusting yourself off and going, I can do better than this. And
1: um, so, is your, what's your approach, Chris? To to is it instinctive or structured? How Have you gone about it? Yeah,
0: look, that's a good question. Over the years, I think it, it's become more instinctive. I think that's what experience does to you, and and also confidence, trusting yourself. But but at the heart of it is structure. I mean. What's the first thing we're taught in marketing, or should be taught anyway, is, is about what is your unique selling point versus the competition? What's your competitive advantage? Yeah. I'm sure you find it as well in your sort of consulting role, Sam, that still I find that we have to push products, brands, companies, people on that fundamental principle. It's it's really interesting that that still that competitive context and understanding how you relate to what's actually happening out in the wider world isn't something that is there you've got to know your competitors and you've got to know what makes you different.
1: Yeah. I, I, for, for me as well, it, it comes from knowing yourself and having some objective process for continuous feedback that you actually take action on. And so building on what you're saying there in terms of knowing yourself, knowing unique USP, it's how do you know where you are? How do you know what, what you're doing? What's the measure that you have in place? What's the scorecard and what's the mechanism to hear back? Did the consumer notice the packaging change or not? Then you, you're asking why and what you're going to do about it is the sentiment for your brand the same? Is it changing? Why is it changing? And how is it changing? What are you going to do about it? What, who is the com- competitor that they're thinking about? Is it the same as before? So all of these things are bringing data and feedback. You know, When I taught marketing as an adjunct on on a n- number of different places, the first thing I did was actually get data and feedback from the students. And you'd hear back from them what they'd learned, what worked, what what, what didn't work. But that meant course correction. And it basically made, made me have to do more work because each lesson was dependent on their feedback and their response. And it meant adjustments, it meant course corrections. And it, it was the approach that was successful, but it meant more work, but it was based on feedback.
0: Yeah, no, I, I get that. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that you have to have a certain amount of self-belief and self-confidence and, and focus it on you. So, so quite often the competition is yourself. So that, that you, you should see how do you improve yourself? How do you beat what you managed to deliver last time? Uh, I always remember when I took the role of Martin director, The Guardian, we were in a David and Goliath battle with News International. They would spend as much on TV advertising in a weekend as we would spend in a month, probably more, to be honest. Um, Me and the team, we analysed the channels where we were strong. Uh, The customers, we were more likely to convert to to Guardian uh, readers. Came to the conclusion that we simply could not compete Mm -hmm. on TV. But where we were strong, where we could get a good rate of return, where we could win, was very much in the digital space. So I put all of the resources into digital marketing, double down mm-hmm. on that basically, um, and that's where we took the market share from. So we actually came off TV, and it was a it was a brave move and it was a courageous mm-hmm. move. But it was distinctly around understanding that sometimes you have to choose your battles, you have to work out how you can outsmart the competition and yeah. where you're going to have a greater impact. Um, I also think so much about is probably cultural, Sam. It's supermarkets where you and I met was very much, grocery retail was very, very competitor heavy, I think. It, it was embedded in that culture about beating the competitors at all costs. Mm-hmm. The same with newspapers. Um so, so I do think some industries that I've worked with since it hasn't formed as much a part of the culture as, as some of those, Sam, What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think you can always see a different dynamic. And what are the terms of the industry? How is the game being played? How is it running? And I always want to fight on my terms and frame the situation in my favor, which means often challenging the status quo or the rules of engagement. I recall working on a brand where it was an appliance business and the whole hmm. industry focused on being number one. They were the best. They were the best selling. They had the most features. They were the number one brand. They were the fastest. Widget, you get you get the point. Everything was always about being mm. the best and banging your chest and, and sort of saber rattling, so to speak. But we couldn't win that game. It was costing us a fortune in product testing to try and find performance superiority claims or opportunities. And looking at the category, I was just thinking, well, the brand had a strong US heritage and the, the competitors out there, the LG's and Samsung's were, were foreign brands. And so that could be an angle to dial up because at the end of the day, as a marketer, that focus on being number one was actually talking about ourselves. The, and consumers didn't care. That wasn't about the consumer. That was about the brand, about the manufacturer. So let's actually talk about the consumer. Let's talk about the brand that most Americans love and talk about their pride yeah. of using the product and talk about the benefits that they'd ha- they've had. And there was a huge pushback when I was suggesting, let's talk about the consumer, then talk about ourselves. And so it was about, you know you cho- we, thank you for choosing us. You, you are making us great, not us making you great. And we had a huge advantage with that story. And so similar to you, it was changing the rules and perhaps, you know, zagging when everyone else is zigging. And it often means you're going against a convention, a norm, or a status quo of doing things. And so I, I break it down into three three steps. Firstly, think about the customer, the consumer, and the shopper. What do they care about? Not what do you care about or what, it, what everyone else cares, cares about, but what do they actually care about? Secondly, persist and seek the evidence it's especially if it's contrarian or find out, find the data, dig into it. What does it say? Actually read it and understand it. What else is also true? It might just be the fact that everyone's looking at the data from the dominant perspective, but is there other data that actually supports your case? And I think thirdly, plan a competitive response. And I'll talk a bit more about this later, because if you do something and the competitors and the market takes notice, then what are you going to do when they start to copy you? It's a game of chess and not checkers, as they'd say in the U S or drafts. as as you'd say in the UK. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. But,
0: but you are right. You're absolutely right there. I think you know, you've you got to anticipate the next move. At, that that has to be a core part of what we do. It's, it's always looking at what the contingency plan is. What's the plan B? How is the competition going to react? And if you can't even see the competition, it's working out what it may well be in the future. Quite often um, you get sort of uh, various incumbents or or even new entrants that are saying, well, actually, there's no there's no real competitors that do what I do. That won't be the case for long. Mm. There is always someone that will do that at some point. But competition can be healthy as well. Let's not forget that. It's, it's actively encouraged both sides of a sand. We don't live in a monopolistic society. And, and however much we try to resist comp- competition from a business sense, it can improve the choice for service and upgrade the technology as well. Let's take Uber, Sam. I know yep. operating U.S. and um, U.K. wise versus the, the black cabs, the, the the taxis, the official taxis over mm-hmm. in um, London town. It arrived in about 2012, and and has has absolutely disrupted the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, there was a, a lot of buzz. Um, they they uh, acquired business, focusing on growth, leaving profits to think about that later. And 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 actually, there was a Therefore, a lot of money put into it, and and uh, certainly the the incumbent, the black cabs, felt that they couldn't compete at that point. Um, to now, where it's a case where, although they've got the scale and and operating in huge amount of cities worldwide, um, actually regulation is now coming back again. It's almost the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the companies, more rules, more taxes, more costly protection for workers, and higher prices for customers. But, but you know, mm. it, it, the the core of it was that black taxis felt very, very under threat and and cheated thanks to what Uber had managed to achieve. You know, since 1865, they've they've um, black taxi dri- um, cabs had to study for three or four years. We call it the knowledge in London and it's about 25,000 streets and 320 different routes and I take absolute pride about that where Uber drivers just follow Satnav. nav yeah nine times out of ten, <laughs> it does tend to get you there. Uh, right. Occasionally it breaks down, but it does tend to get you there. So, so there was fe- a feeling from the black t- um, cabs that they were under threat. They were heavily regulated when there was this new upstart coming in, um, which didn't need for qualifications, didn't have the strict regulations in place. Um, and And they protested against it. However, The other side of it was, was that there was certainly a few grumbles that, um, you know, despite reputations, customer service wasn't necessarily as high as it could be in black cabs. Also, there was a very, very cash rich culture. It was positively discouraged for you to pay by credit cards or any other means. You know, it was very much Mm -hmm. like they wouldn't take the fare. and, And it felt very much that you were humbled to be in a black cab. Uber changed all of that. It changed it around convenience. It changed it around feedback culture and customer services. It certainly changed it in terms of a contactless society um, and, and driving that. Without Uber, the black taxi trade was certainly not of uh, embrace that as quickly as it mm-hmm. did and then, quite frankly it took a long time to embrace it um, now the, the flip side of all of that is that mm-hmm. you've got competition it's increased the the value of it from the services but in less than a decade it has managed to disrupt that unt- long untouched taxi industry but at the same time now it's it's facing increased regulation and um, and it is now in a situation where it's lost its license in the UK after repeated safety failures. So it hasn't actually mm-hmm. taken a uh, full note of the competition mm-hmm. from the other perspective, which is that providing a service is also by pro- about providing a safe, and reliable service. I know you got a view on that as well, haven't you?
1: Yeah, and I think Uber has been a great case study for a number of years of how awesome and how to do things. And let's break down what they did well. Uh, like the case studies say, they solve fundamental issues the consumer had and a really consumer-centered experience design. They Taxis are not affordable, findable, or um, timely. So picture the scene, you're in the middle of the city hmm. and you've got a no-miss doctor's appointment and it's pouring with rain. Good luck getting get one of those cabs. Uber solved this te- with, with this technology and its economical um, advantages, shows you where the taxes are, tells you exactly how far away and when you'll arrive, and gives you the price. Perfect. But let's take a closer look as you started doing. and They're actually facing a number of headwinds that would have been foreseen, I, I'd say, if they'd done a steep analysis. Now, a steep analysis is that tried and trusted framework that's perfectly applicable when you're thinking strategically, especially in a competitive landscape. So I'd apply it here, and steep stands for st- social, Technological, economical, environmental, and political—that sort of framework that you can apply. And living in the US, Uber experience has been hugely welcome and hugely successful. But the tide is turning, and as you look at this steep analysis, the US listeners probably won't realise is that it's a completely different story if you if you apply, if you study this brand overseas there's a lot of political pressures you've described they've actually also been rejected in germany they've lost another court case there i lived there for 3 years and in that country they had mercedes and high quality cars as standards of efficiency cleanliness and reliability a hugely regulated industry and they're being held to those private hire vehicle regulations that haven't necessarily been applied elsewhere. They've lost their license in London, as you said, because of safety um, concerns and safety regulations. They're facing social pressures, Um, And the S from that steep framework in terms of greater disclosures and greater transparency. They've had to recently publish their data on sexual assaults, which is really highlighting some serious issues and significant issues. There's technology concerns and greater scrutiny of how you could design a a product that isn't safe for its customers. And I could go on using that framework. So for me, having a global perspective and global experiences has been a blessing in my career as it's made me more curious and aware. But from our audience's perspective, what you can take away is tapping into that steep framework is a way to think about competition and allows you to see more opportunities so that you build a solution that's different and better, but actually addresses some of these issues that they're facing overseas and are starting to face in the US.
0: Whether they foresaw these challenges and chose to ignore them until they came to be a little bit more in the foreground, or whether they didn't do the analysis, I think I think the point is still the same, isn't it? That you know, competition works two ways, doesn't it? it it's there, and you can work out where you can drive change versus your competitors. But actually, if regulation is established to ensure that a competitor is working in a certain way, then you, then your other competition is the is the, the society itself and what they demand as standards. So so yeah, I think mm. that's that that's a good case. But I mean, you know, some people also, some brands actually make a virtue out of competition. They they positively embrace it. But the one that springs to mind is very much about the, the Virgin British Airways sort of dogfight around the airlines, which, which would have been going on for a uh, a a huge amount of time, probably since about 1984, I think, you know, a a long time and and still really exists, although I think it's a, it's a bit more, um, you know, friendly competition rather than the days of uh, the dirty um, tricks. But, but I think, this, is a, this illustrates how you use competition to be an advantage, to real add value and emotion into the brand. Um, in September 99, uh we have a London Eye. That was a, um, a large um, sort of uh, you know, landmark, which I'm, I'm sure is familiar to most people across the pond as well. And it was due to be erected. British Airways, they owned a proportion of it, I think half of it and maybe a third of it. And we're going to be a title sponsor. Um, and. And there was mechanical issues, trying to get this big um, circus wheel, um, fairground wheel rather, off the ground. Um, Richard Branson never wanted to miss a PR opportunity. Um, I think he flew an airship over the site um, and he... Hang a, bang, a banner from it, which said "BA can't get it up." Pretty uh, oh, okay. spontaneous. It was obviously, the mechanical failure in terms of getting it up was only a day or two. So he seized that opportunity, and and it worked brilliantly for him. Uh, that stunt generated huge attention in the media, and he went to, uh, went on to win a string of Martin Awards uh, off the back of it. And that was very much about using that rivalry, using that competition. In a playful way mm-hmm. to help drive your brand forward, so I think that's a that's a nice example of what healthy competition looks like. But of course, it's not always like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the, 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 the um BA dirty tricks, the libel case, I think, um which came out. Um, but at the heart of it, it is about identifying opportunities to stand out, cut through, demonstrate your different. And, and that's what we talked about in many of the podcasts, and, and that applies the same when you're targeting your competition. Uh, but Sam, why, why do so many big companies fail to see competitors coming at them? Yeah, it's, well, clearly, that one's a bit more of a spontaneous example, but but there's plenty where they've had many years, isn't it, before they've um, reacted to competition
1: Well, so the listeners now, listen carefully, get your pens out. So I'm going to ask you the big question as to why. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I think failing to see the competition is more about refusing to prioritize the consumer or the customer or the shopper. So for me, I think it's just looking actually at the competition and not looking at your consumers. And it's... You know, a business model often that you've got that is working and you're stuck with it and you're looking at your competition and you're just copying them and you're actually not really following consumers. And if you think about it, so many examples out there of companies that have gone away because they took their eye off the consumer. You've got Kodak, you actually invented the digital camera in the seventies, but they stuck with the model of making film and their business relying on that. You had Xerox who created the user experience, PC experience with the mouse, and that got pinched by Steve Jobs and Apple. And we know the rest of the story for that. Blockbuster who were more invested in late fees and expensive candy in their stores. So they turned down Netflix when Netflix came to them and said, hey, we think this is the future. And I worked for a music retailer called HMV which was a music retail and they did have some exposure to online and downloading, but they didn't take it seriously. They didn't want to be part of that business. And fast forward to the today, and you see where we are. So for me, the whole story there, it's about adapting. It's about change. And there's a movement started by Greg Verdino, who's a business futurist and a digital transformational leader, and Ian Patterson, who's a digital strategist, communications and change leader. And they have this 10-step manifesto. Now, I'm not going to go through all the 10 steps here. You can find it at adaptmanifesto.org. That's adaptmanifesto.org. And I'm just going to go through a few of the steps. I think one of them that stands out for me is embracing ambiguity. And it's the idea to act on intelligence, but in the absence of certainty, you still need to move forward. So don't let perfection be the enemy of good. So there's embrace ambiguity. There is the idea of learn, unlearn, relearn, and repeat. And the idea that Everyone has the capacity to achieve wider understanding, gain new skill sets and develop new mindsets. So you just got to go through this in a systematic and repeated way. And the other um, manifesto element that I think stands out is fund the future. It's the idea of actually investing in the people, the processes and the technologies to make adaptation a reality. So be willing to allocate money and rewards and resources to the things you need to do and go after them. That for me is what drives competitive success. And it's the right mindset, but the all about focusing on the consumer and a customer and less about looking at your direct competitors so if you're listening to this show then take get your pens out again i'd say break it down into three different tiers a small is thinking about it a bit nearer in think about it in terms of competitive response modeling so you're Responding to mitigate competitive actions, you're getting the cross-functional team or colleagues together to to plan what happens if they launch a Me Too product, or if they make the same claim that you're making, or if they price match your promotion, or if they hire the same contestant from Dancing with the Stars. What are you going to do? So that's kind of nearer in. A medium-term approach could be more like warm ga- war gaming, which builds a detailed executional plan with resource commitments, and you're bringing a cross-functional team and leaders together. But you're actually s- setting up rooms, you're immersing in comp- but you're making decisions and then the budget gets allocated. It doesn't wait till funding till next year or it doesn't take next year's plan. It actually becomes this year's plan. So wargaming is something you can do in the midterm. And then think about, about a longer term approach, which is more like a growth ladder, a three-year strategy, which is trying to disrupt the status quo. It's a three-year plan that needs to be, what needs to be true about your business, what needs to be true about your brand, what behavior changes need to happen, what needs to happen from your customer perspective, and you're resetting the business to fit this new two, three-year vision. So those are the sort of small, medium, large approaches that I would suggest
0: yeah good so so there's some definite lessons here. Choose your battles, be clear on your strengths and be clear and 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 also clear your pockets are big enough and make sure that you're not looking at a competition just in front of you I think there uh, but but interesting, I think one area where. Um, I see sort of competitive action really at, uh, at the forefront of a of role really is around performance marketing, the the fight for market share via search engine marketing and pay-per-click advertising. I think we're, we'll come back to that in a later episode and get into the, the detail there. But I think the, the fundamental reason is that data is easier to access. So it allows you to look at driving that share impression, identifying the long tail of the search where there's less competition. Um, so, so again, data, and technology is, is key there. But there are some fundamental things to do, I think. Make sure you have your analytics and early warning system. Look at the places where the competition isn't saturated, you know, Snapchat, TikTok, the long tail of search, carving out a niche market. Protect yourself. A lot of organisations don't take the basic steps, such as trademark applications, or ensuring that their URLs are in date and renew properly. And don't let mm-hmm. emotions run your strategy for you. Let the goals and targets do that. Yep. L- lots, lots of points, lots of summaries here, Sam. So l- let's be, let's just end on the the three takeouts and reflections of this session.
1: Well, we started all this by making it personal. What's your own competitive story? What's driving you and how can you think about it? But frame it in your terms before you can then apply it, I think, in a business context. Secondly, have a framework. So we talked about a few different ones there, but the competitive fitness was an example of where there's small, medium, large. How are you going to tackle competition? What's your framework and process? And thirdly, It's about being adaptable. Change is the only constant in life. And if you're in the world of work, the world of business, then there's going to be competitiveness out there. There's going to be competition out there. So be adaptable and tap into that that 10-step framework from a a adapt um, manifesto. I think that could be a great catalyst for for things to improve and for you to compete successfully in the future. Excellent, excellent. Well, look next next episode, we're
0: we're looking to the future. Um, will AI change marketing for the better, or will robots be the next CMO? Um, the answer is no, by the way. I know it's a spoiler, but but the answer is no. But there's a huge amount to talk about there. Um, it's going to be a really, really good episode. Uh, I know we've done quite a lot towards that already. So looking forward to it, Sam.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Chris. As ever, you're keeping us both busy. So until next time, Chris, have a great week across the pond.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. We hope you enjoyed it. Find more by visiting marketingtransform.com and click on the subscribe link. If you listen via Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud or anything else, then click on follow, subscribe or type Marketing Transformed" into search. We're a new show, so please leave us a review, comment, or ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. Get in touch at marketingtransformedshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com.